Good morning, everyone. I am becoming bolder and bolder and bringing these up here with me. Just on the off chance that I need them because I don't want to be left without them. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 11. Your Bible ought to fall open to Romans chapter 11 by this point, and it can turn itself there, I'm sure. We're going to uh, be reading again this uh, final uh, concluding paragraph to Romans chapter 11. I forgot to announce, I'm sorry, the children, they already did it. Somebody's on the ball. I'm glad there's somebody on the ball. <laughs> We're going to be reading from the end of Romans chapter 11, but before we get there, I wanted to make uh, just a couple of brief announcements. Uh, first of all, um, Jamie Ball, who's sitting down here in the front row, uh, is moving, and so today will be her last day at church. And so um, you need to say goodbye to her after the service is over, please. Um, and uh, But don't, don't forget that. I will try to remember to remind us at the end, but uh, we want to say goodbye to uh, Jamie. And, and uh, she still has connections here in Fallon, of course, but uh, nevertheless, she'll be uh, departing from our midst, and we want to bless her as she goes. I also want to uh, remind us that we have uh, evening church, and that's that'll be tonight at uh, 6 p.m., and uh, we do... Uh, an entirely um, separate service from the one we do here. So we preach on a different topic, we sing different songs, and uh, and so I would encourage you for that, uh, 6 p.m. on Sunday evenings. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Passover and uh, how the Passover relates to Easter, how it relates to uh, this time of year and what we're celebrating in our church calendar this year. So you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 11. And... I want to read again for us from verses 33 through the end of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to this passage of Scripture that is not just a lone passage. It's not just one spot, one paragraph loosely connected to what came before and what comes after. This is a summary in the form of doxology reflecting on the wonders of this salvation that we have in Christ. It is wonderful. It is glorious. It is magnificent. It draws our attention. It draws our affections. It captures our minds. It is too great for us. Father, as we come to this, our text today, we we recognize that we have just a few brief minutes together to reflect upon the wonders, the glories of this salvation that is ours in Christ, what you have accomplished on our behalf in your Son. Taking those who were at enmity with you and making us your own children in Christ. taking those who were guilty to an infinite degree of offending your glory, offending your majesty, offending you, and instead giving them forgiveness, giving them access to your very presence, to your throne room, into your family. 
And so as we embark upon this all-too-brief journey, all-too-brief glance at this Gospel, at this passage, we recognize that we will do so all too briefly, that we will not be able to dwell on Your majesty, Your wisdom, Your work in Christ adequately today. But I pray that You would be at work in our hearts by Your Spirit in these next few minutes that You would lift our eyes to You our hearts to You, that we would glory in what You've accomplished, that we would rejoice in this salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So, as we uh, come to our passage today, and as I alluded to, in my prayer, we're really covering one verse, and you would think, come on, Brennan, you can cover one verse. You can do it adequately. You can, uh, you can present what is there. You can uh, uh, work through this in, in a way that will, that will give adequate coverage to uh, what is intended in this verse. If you thought that, you would be wrong. And that doesn't mean that we're going to do an eight-part series <clears throat> or even a two-part series. <clears throat> on Romans 11.36. What it means is that as I look at this verse, simple words, simple language, I'm struck by the fact that we are not sufficient for these things. That our time together will be the briefest of mentions of what is contained in this verse. And so, we need the Lord to bless us. We need His Spirit to work in us. We need Him to work in our hearts to draw our affections, our minds, our thoughts to Him, to what He's accomplished. That that this verse would, would stick in our minds as Paul intended it to, as I believe God intends for it to do to draw us to Christ. Paul, in this section, has uh, finally drawn to a close a very grand doctrinal argument that he has made, uh, really starting all the way back in chapter 1, that he has been... He has been laying out for us the truths of the Gospel, the truths of our own existence, what it means to be human and what it means to be human in light of the fall, what it means to be human in light of the fall, in light of who God is. And he has examined this point and that point. He's talked about our own culpability before God. He's, he's talked about the entirety of the gospel. And we come to the last verse, the exclamation point at the end of that gospel treatise, that doctrinal treatise. And Paul bursts forth in in wonder and in praise in this section about what God has accomplished on our behalf. And we call that kind of bursting forth in song or in praise, we call that doxology. And so doxology is what happens when we behold God's glory and we respond in praise. That is doxology. And I could have entitled our message today simply doxology. And that would have been adequate. And that would have been good. But we've called it a Christian doxology. Because this is such a distinctively Christian expression of praise to God. It is gloriously profound and full and yet succinct. And it is expressing for us the kernel, the heart of what is a Christian worldview. What's a worldview? Worldview has been described as the lens through which we look 
at life. We look through, not focusing on the lenses, but seeing the world beyond because of utilizing these lenses. And each of us has a worldview. We look at the world through a particular grid. We have certain deeply held beliefs that interpret for us what we see. In the illustration of the lens, if you wear green colored lenses, it makes Fallon look lush and beautiful. You see green everywhere. That's my favorite color of lens, by the way. I love green. I love to see green stuff growing. And somehow those lenses pull out green. They're actually not pulling it out. They're, the green is located in the lens itself so that when I look at a field, if I were to take my glasses off, it might be brown, it might be greenish, but it's lush when I have those glasses on. I like that. It colors my view of what I see. Well, we all have a worldview. We all have lenses through which we look at the entire world. A grid in which we interpret everything. And so I've called this a Christian doxology. I've said that this verse contains a Christian worldview. So what is a Christian worldview? If everybody has a worldview, what is a Christian worldview? We have a Christian worldview when we view the world around us in the lens of the deeply held beliefs that the Bible would have us hold. When we believe the things the Bible teaches, and we do so in such a deep way that it colors how we see everything, how we interpret all the things. It's the grid through which we look at the world, and that grid is formed, it is shaped by Scripture. So that's a Christian worldview. That's a biblical worldview. And we can get even more pointed than that as we think about what the Bible teaches and identify what is the nature of that Christian worldview. It's really seeing the world through the gospel. Not just God exists, man is a sinner. Those are all true things, but that's not the final thing. We have salvation in Christ because Jesus Christ became a man became one of us entered into this world so that you have God who is out there, who is the creator, is separate from creation, has entered into creation in the person of his son and not just done so in order to be present with us, but in order to bring redemption for us. And so a Christian worldview looks at the world, looks at all that goes on in this world and interprets all of it in light of Jesus and what he has done. In light of the truths about God, about man, and about redemption in Christ. That's a Christian worldview. And so I've, I've called this message a Christian doxology because there are many doxologies. There are many types of uh, glory being given to different gods, to different things, but this is a, a distinctly Christian worldview. This is a distinctly Christian expression of doxology and praise to God for what he has done. And here in Romans eleven thirty six, this may be the most concise and clear expression of a biblically informed, Christ-centered, Christian worldview. And so we want to work our way carefully through this one verse. There are no big words, no complex sentence structures, and it is deep, deep truth about God. Expression of what Paul has been teaching. First of all, we see that God is the source of all things. From Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things. So we want to look at that from Him part. He is the source of all things. And we see that, of course, in creation. We know we, as the creatures, the, the creation, we have our existence because God, as the Creator, has created us. And so in that sense, He is the source of everything. 
He is the source of us. And that's what Genesis 1-1 is communicating to us when we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way back in the beginning, God created. And we came to be. Everything created came to be when God created. And of course, in the New Testament, the Apostle John reflecting on the creation of the world and how it relates to Christ, how Christ informs our understanding of the creation of the world. We see in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the source of all things. He's the creator of all things. All things that exist came ultimately from him. He's the source. And this is what we read in Jeremiah 51 and verse 15. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. He's the source of all things. And so we could very easily say in creation, all things are from him. But he's not just the source in creation. He's the source in the sense that he is also sustaining. He is actively sustaining. He's not a, a deistic God who is standing back and he, he made the clock and wound it up and now he stands back and watches it tick down. He didn't just get the basketball spinning and then step away and watch it keep spinning without him. He is actively involved in sustaining the universe even now. And so we read in Hebrews 1.3 that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's upholding it. It's not floating out there irrespective of him. It's not just a, a clock on the, on the mantle that's ticking away. He is actively upholding it. And doing so by the word of his power. And Paul would say, speaking to the philosophers in Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Our existence, not just the beginning of it, is due to God. The fact that our existence continues is due to God. He is the source in that he sustains all things. And he is the source of all things also in the rescue, in our rescue. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That means it comes from him. This salvation that we have, this rescue that is ours, the source of that is him. That comes to us from him. And Paul reflecting on that same notion in Ephesians chapter 1, in that very great and extended passage talking about the blessings that are ours, the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They come from Him. And then He begins to delineate them. He begins to spell out for us what are these blessings that are ours in Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Where did this grace come from? Where does this salvation come from? It comes from Him. It's sourced from Him. He is the one who brings it. He's the one who gives it. He's the one who gives, blesses us with those spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. He's the source. Our salvation has its source in the mind and the actions of God. As He Himself determined what He would do on our behalf, when he 
saw us in our sinful condition, he would have been right and just to leave us there. To step back, wash his hands of us, and start over. Or not start over. That was his prerogative. But he determined not to leave us in that lost condition of sin, at enmity with God, in danger from God's wrath, the objects of wrath. He, he, he determined not to leave us there. Instead, he sent his own son into this context as one of us to rescue us from that lost condition of opposition to God. Though, though he came as one of us, he didn't come in opposition to God. He came in obedience to God. Living as man ought to live, living as God's special creation, man, ought to live. The Son came from eternity, entered into our humanity, and was obedient, was pleasing to the Father, in his own actions, was obedient as a perfect son to his father. So we see that all things are from him. Every last thing is from him. And we see that Paul continues here and he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. He is also the provider of all things. Not just giving it some time in the past, but providing it to us now. And we can, we can look into the past and we can see his provision in, in history. We have the advantage now when we look back at history and seeing how God put together history to bring the various aspects of our redemption into place. If you think about what had to happen in order for Joseph and Mary to make it to the right place at the right time to have that baby. When you look at what had to happen in the course of the politics of Israel in order for Pilate to be in place and Herod to be in place and, and, and these people and, and those people to be in place to bring about God's providential working in history. God is actively, currently providing. He is actively, currently at work. He is the provider of all things, even now, so that Paul can say, from him and through him. Isaiah reflects on God's working in history in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken. And I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is not distant and removed from the functions, the workings of history. He is actively involved in accomplishing history. His providence is at work even in the way history plays out. And he's also the provider of all things, not just in history. He's the provider of all things in life. Not just in the grand scheme, not just in nation against nation and this leader and that leader or, or sometime in the distant past or anything like that. He's the provider of all things in life. And there's a, a passage that if you've not memorized, you ought to spend the time to memorize is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and following where Jesus is referring to this fact of, of God's present provision in life. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All things are through him. He is actively at work, even now, providing all things in our life. Day to day, the mundane and the enormous. The impossible and that which is so simple we never think about. Like the fact that your heart just beat. You got to breathe again. He's the provider of all things in this life. From Him... And through Him are all things. He's the provider of all things also in redemption. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He provides all things in our redemption. He works savingly and entirely in our redemption, in saving us and taking those who were at enmity with Him and bringing them into peace with Him. He's the provider of all things in redemption. He's the one. God is the one who, in seeing us in our sinful rebellion, in the, in the debt that we were born into and made worse by our own lifestyle, that enmity with God, seeing that situation, He's the one who provided the appropriate sacrifice for us. Because we had been accumulating debt for ourselves, we had been at work making ourselves even worse enemies of God by our rebellion against Him, by our continued unbelief, by our rejection of His Word and what He says. We needed a sacrifice. We needed someone to pay that penalty. Our debt was beyond our comprehension, certainly beyond our ability to pay. And God is the one who provides the Redeemer. Jesus himself who comes onto the scene, who is that obedient son to the Father, whose worth is infinite because he is God the Son, whose righteousness is perfect because he's always obedient, that he himself goes to that cross, goes to the place of punishment for you and for me. God Himself is the one who provided the Redeemer. God Himself is the one who provided the appropriate sacrifice for us. It wasn't like we thought up something really good and we gave this sacrifice. We concocted an idea. We came up with a good scheme. We, we finally figured out what would really make God happy and we did that thing. God Himself provided that ram. God Himself provided that sacrifice. He is the provider of all things including in redemption. From Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. Not only is He the, the source, not only is He the provider, 
but he is the recipient of all glory. He is the object. He is the goal. He is the telos, the end of all things. From him and through him and to him are all things. He's the recipient of all glory. He's the recipient of glory even in judgment for sin. Ezekiel 28.22 Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. Even in God's revelation of judgment, He Himself is being glorified. That God Himself is righteous and He is holy, and His righteousness, His holiness has been offended by sin. And in that context, in the face of that sin, the, the righteous response to an infraction against His holiness is wrath from God, culminating in judgment from God. God is expressing, He's demonstrating, He's showing His own glory when He pours out that wrath upon infractions against His glory, against His holiness, against His character. It is good and right for God to express even judgment. He is glorified in that judgment so that we read in Ezekiel that I am against you, O Sidon. I will manifest my glory in your midst. Well, great. God's going to be glorified in their midst. Isn't that an encouraging thing for them? They shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her. God is glorified even in judgment. He's the recipient of all glory in the judgment for sin. Similarly, we read in Revelation 14 and verse 7, And the angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The hour of His judgment is come. How should we respond to Him? Glory. Glory. Several of us were at a conference yesterday and the day before in Sacramento, and and one of the uh, presenters was talking about how awful God's judgment is. And it is. It is awful. But that does not mean that it's not glorifying to God. It doesn't mean that it's not glorious to Him. It is right for the righteous God to execute righteous judgment on the unrighteous. But it is awful from our perspective. But Paul can look even at that and he can say from him and through him and to him are all things, even glory in judgment. He's the recipient of glory in judgment of sin and he's the recipient of glory in our own Christian life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the goal. That's the direction your life is pointed. The Puritans refer to it as living to God. Living Godward lives. That He's the ultimate end. He's the ultimate goal. He's the ultimate recipient of the glory even in our own Christian lives. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even the way we live our lives has a purpose, has a goal, has a focus, has an end. There is someone who receives glory for the way we live our lives. And that is to be God Himself. He is the recipient of that glory. Paul can say, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things trend towards Him. All things give Him glory. All things. 
He's the recipient of glory and judgment for sin. He's the recipient of glory in our Christian life. And he's the recipient of glory and salvation. I read earlier from Ephesians 1, I'll continue in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The direction, the point, the end, the target, the goal of all things is glory to God. There are interim goals, things not ultimate, And so we pray in uh, different situations for God's glory and our good, that God would do this thing for his glory and our good. And you and I can praise God that our good in Christ is wrapped up in his glory. But the ultimate target, the one that is the backdrop, the one that makes sense of all the others, is God's own glory. He's the recipient of all glory. It is geared towards Him. That is a uniquely Christian way of thinking. And that's why I call this a Christian doxology. Before I knew Christ, that would have made no sense. That all things come from God. That in some way He's at work to accomplish all things. All things are through him, and that he's the ultimate point of all things, that he is the one who receives the glory in all things, would have made no sense to me whatsoever as a non-Christian. This is a uniquely and specifically and explicitly Christian doxology. Today is March 28th. And not quite three decades ago, on this day, my world changed. And my worldview began to change. As I did things for my own glory, as I had no idea what the source of all things was, as I accomplished what I could, and took what I couldn't accomplish. As I was the goal, as I was the focus, as I was the center of my world, as I was an unbeliever. And on this day, all those years ago, God drew me to himself. He made himself known to me that he birthed in me a faith in him that has changed all of eternity for me. That he saved my sinful soul. That he, he, he began the reshaping process of my worldview, of how I understand all things. And we all know that the worldview switch doesn't happen like a switch on the wall that I joke that I'm the center of the world, and that's because in my sinful ways I, I act as though I am. I still retain that. But the shift began, and God became central in my life. And I began to be able to recognize with Paul 
that all things are from Him. The difficulties I face in life, the the challenges that I have to go through, the hardships, the roadblocks, it's from Him. I began to realize that even my own salvation was from Him. Had He not done it, it would not have been done. My salvation is from Him. And so I could say with Paul, from Him are all things. He enabled me to begin to see that all things are through Him. He is accomplishing those things in my life. Not just passively allowing them to happen, but somehow they are happening through Him. Being accomplished, circumstances in my life, relationships, things that I learn. I began to understand with Paul that all things are from Him and through Him. And slowly, slowly, I have begun to learn to see and to believe and to value that all things are also to Him, for Him, headed towards Him. With Him is the goal. With Him is the recipient of the glory of all things. I say that's a slow process because I would sure like to keep some of that glory for myself a lot of times. And I'm not alone in that. But I have, I have come to see as, as God has been gentle and patient with me, with Paul, that all things are from him and through him and to him. But not just circumstances in my life. Salvation itself. And I believe that's most specifically what Paul is talking about here in Romans 11 and verse 36. I believe he's, he's wrapping up his explanation of the gospel. He's, he's, he's bringing it to a conclusion in such a way that we can understand, that we can underline, we can put a pin there, that we can, we can understand the point, the end result of all that he said about the gospel. As he has explained our own guilt, our own inability, as he has explained how Jesus has worked in the face of that, Christ himself coming onto the scene as a second Adam, as a last Adam who obeyed where Adam disobeyed, and who made payment for the penalty of sin so that in Adam I was lost I was separate I was unable I was an object of wrath I was outside but in Christ but in Christ I have become the recipient of those blessings that are in Christ of peace with God of sonship of being brought into God's family of having my penalty paid for, having God as my Father instead of God as my judge. So in Christ, I inherit that, and, and that's not the end because God continues to work, not only providing something for us out there, but He actually works within us and changes our heart so that by bringing us into Christ in that process, He actually works in our own heart to cause us to want to obey Him, to cause us to become obedient from the heart. Because now God is not our judge, and we're on the outside, and we're cold and distant and removed from Him and running in fear from Him. We have Him as our Father. Our Father who loves us and is has expressed that by giving us His own Son for us. I want to obey my dad. He gives me a new heart to cause me to want to. He actually changes me, brings about a new change in me, not just sealing a deal, not just changing my destiny and then leaving everything up to me. He's actually accomplished a change within me by giving me a new heart. He's made me his own. He's worked that salvation in me. 
And then he's gotten much more explicit in nine, the end of eight, nine, ten, and eleven, in talking about how this comes about, how this comes to me, how this comes to be true of me. That it is God at work, accomplishing salvation. When Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost, he saved the lost. And that was me. So I come to see with Paul that even my salvation is from him. Even my salvation is through him. And at the same time, I see with Paul that my salvation is ultimately to be glorifying to him. It points to Him. It glorifies Him. My good and my salvation and my eternity are wrapped up in that, but not as the ultimate. What is ultimate is God's glory. And so Paul, at the conclusion of all of that, and having gone into detail and having developed in all of these different ways and, and, and understanding how the gospel works, how salvation works and how it comes to be ours... At the conclusion of all of that, he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so just a couple of questions as we close our time today and such a short time to dig into what is such a powerful verse, can you say with Paul, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. One other point of application as we go away. As you read God's Word, and we encourage you to do that every day. We encourage you to open God's Word. We encourage you to read what is here because this is where He tells us about Himself, about us, and about this salvation in Christ. As you open God's Word, as you read it day after day, look for these truths in Scripture. Paul asserts that they are there. Paul asserts that these things are true he does so as a summary of all the arguments that he's made before about God's work in salvation in all of its glory, in all of its detail, in all of its magnitude and effectiveness. So when you read God's Word, look for these truths in Scripture. And the more you look for these truths, the more you will see these truths. You, the more you will see God is the source of all things. God is at work accomplishing all things. And God is the one who is the ultimate recipient of all glory for all things. Our task has been a big one today, and I, I know we've gone very quickly. And there is so much more to talk about. My goal at the conclusion, my goal at the end of this sermon on this one wonderful verse is that we would see God how Paul sees God. That we would glorify Him the way Paul glorifies Him. That we would see that all things are from Him and through him, and to him. And that our heart would cry out with Paul's, therefore, in light of that, to him be glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we have gone very quickly through uh, what is indeed a short verse, but coming as the exclamation point at the end of a long and detailed and glorious exposition of the gospel, it is hard to do it justice. It will be enough for us, Lord, 
if we go away thinking high thoughts of you, giving you glory that you are the source of all things. We owe all things to you. It will be enough if we go away with high thoughts, recognizing that you are the provider of all things, that you are even now at work accomplishing your purposes. Your providence is at work even now, though I can't see it, yet I trust it. It will be enough for us if we go away recognizing, having high thoughts of, about the glory that is due your name. All glory is due your name without limit, without fail, without exception. So I pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would work in us, that we would go out with high thoughts of you, that we would praise you for this salvation that is ours in Christ, that we would praise you for these rich spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places in Christ, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth today. Capture our hearts, we pray. Be lifted up. And may we be able to express with Paul this distinctly Christian expression of worldview, this distinctly Christian doxology, that we would give all glory to you, that we could say with Paul, from you and through you and to you, are all things to you be glory forever. Amen and amen. There will be a family up here to pray with you who would love to do so. Please uh, come and pray with them. They would love that. Uh, we would love to see you tonight. Next week is uh, Easter, and so Friday night stuff and Sunday morning, we would love to see you there as well and worship God for what he has done for us in Christ. God bless you all, and you are dismissed. Mm -hmm.